This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. We are in a series in the book First Peter called Stand Firm, because this is a book about standing firm uh, in the Lord during difficult times in particular is how uh, the context of those who were written, uh, the first readers of this book were experiencing difficult times. Uh, we've just covered a section of the book where Peter has written to these suffering Christians who are on the margins of society, and he has said to them, uh, basically, uh, here's how you are to live when you are in a uh, context when you're on the outside. You are to be submissive. Now, that would be for all Christians. You're to lead a submissive lifestyle. And so he addressed citizens. You're to be submissive to your government. You're to honor the emperor, uh, which is what we're all to do. And then he talks to those who are servants. Closest thing for us might be employers. And he says, you know, you are to honor your employer. And uh, even when they treat you unjustly, and in particular, that's what he addresses. And then last week, we looked at a passage uh, about wives uh, being submissive to their husbands and husbands loving and, and living with their wives in an understanding way. So now, uh, coming out of that, we're just going to look at four, ver- five verses tonight, and then next week uh, we'll finish chapter 3 and be moving through the book pretty quickly. Just to let you know, the next thing we're going to do after First Peter is we're going to do a series uh, that will be a few messages uh, that will be taken from different passages of Scripture on the theme of worship. We're going to talk about corporate worship. What, what is it we do when we gather? Um, in particular, we're going to talk about corporate worship. We'll talk about worship as a lifestyle as well. So here we go. First Peter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous." And his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we just confess as we gather here tonight, uh, we need your word. Lord, many of us have all kinds of things on our mind coming into a holiday time. Some in the room will be traveling. Some are uh, on vacation from school. Some are cranking out work in the last few days of the week, in the first few days of the week. Um, Lord, we come with all kinds of stuff on our hearts and our minds, and we just pray that you would clear all of that out of our heads and that you would give us the ability to focus and to hear what you have to say to us from this passage of Scripture. We ask you to speak because we need to know your revealed will. We need to know your truth. This is your word, your inerrant, authoritative word. And we ask that you would speak to us clearly tonight. And uh, I just pray that you'd fill me with your spirit and enable me to proclaim your word truthfully um, and with your unction, Lord. So I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me ask you a question tonight. I want to start with this question. Are you called? Are you called? 
in the church tradition I grew up in, that, that phrase was only applied to a few people, typically. Uh, the called were those who were, it was used to mean called to the office of elder or pastor, typically. So, so a called person was someone who, who sensed the Lord's direction, that the Lord was, uh, was charging them, equipping them, gifting them, uh, and directing them to be a pastor. So mostly when that was used, if some people were called, but m- not everybody would say, no, I- I'm not called. I mean, actually, uh, th- the terrible term that was used in the tradition I grew up in was someone surrendered to the ministry, which was also uh, just f- absolutely frightful. I mean, I think you surrender to an enemy who has a gun pointed at you. And so it made God sound as if he's this bad guy who's going to say, I'm going to ruin your life. And finally, I surrender to these terrible things. Okay, I've got to love your people. Oh, no, Lord, please, no. It just sounded strange to surrender to that, but okay, that's what we called it. And uh, or we were called, or someone was called to be a missionary. So what's what's he going to do? I don't know. He's called to missions. He's called to the nation. So it's kind of used that way. So that, that's that's one way it could be used. Another way that we say is, uh, are you called? Is the Bible uses it to describe every Christian. So every Christian is called. A, que- a Christian is someone who has experienced. God's call. For instance, Romans 8 says this, those whom he foreknew, he also called, and those he called, he also justified. So what it says is before time, God chose, he foreknew who would be his, he chose before time, and in time, he called people, and he justified them. That means he declared them right with God. So in time, God brought the gospel to someone, and then he called them, and with that call, it brought a response from our heart to him. So in that way, every Christian is called, not just some people, but everybody is called because called means Christian. At the time of the Reformation, being called uh, came to take on a new dimension. Uh, the Latin word for call is where we get our word vocation. And, and so in the Reformation, we saw that everyone had a calling. It wasn't just the priests or uh, later the ministers that were called, but everyone had a calling. And we all actually have multiple callings was one of the emphases of the Reformation in which we stand in line with that biblical tradition is that we believe that everyone has a calling. So you are called to a job. You're called to your work in the marketplace. That's your calling. Or you're called to be a stay-at-home mom. Or if you're in school, you have a calling. God's called you to be a student. So we have a calling in terms of that kind of vocation. What we do with the majority of our time is a calling before the Lord. Or uh, you're, if you're married, you're called to be a husband or you're called to be a spouse. If you have kids, you're called to be a parent. If you have parents, you're called to be a son or a daughter to your parents. We're called to be citizens of our country and the obligations that that brings. We're called to be a neighbor to the people we uh, live near. Uh, so we have all kinds of call, called to be a church member and serve in our local church, participate there. So in that way, we say we have different kinds of calling. So we're called to the Lord. Uh, some may be, if we could use that, you know, called to a specific ministry in the church, but everybody has multiple callings in their lives. So we're all called people. Now, here's the interesting thing about the passage we're looking at tonight. It's about a call, and it's about your calling. And, and, and it is about uh, all of the called 
um, experiencing a certain goal in all of our callings. All of the called people are to pursue a certain thing in all of our callings. That's what it's talking about, this passage. And in this passage, it says that we are all called to bless. We are called to be a blessing. Look at verse 9, which we read. It says, do not, re- uh, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. To this you were called. So he says, as a called person, as a Christian, you have this specific calling. And whatever you are called to do, you are called to bless. Whatever you're called to do, God has set you apart for himself for you to be a blessing. That's your purpose. That's what God created you for. That's what he has now reconciled you to himself for, that you are to be a blessing. And I wonder if you think about your life that way, that I'm waking up today. What am I supposed to do? Well, I don't know what is on the agenda, but I know this. I'm called to bless. I'm called to bless people. As the people blessed by God, we're called to bless others with, and this is what the passage talks about, with certain attitudes and with certain actions. So it's not just somebody sneezes and we say, God bless you, and we fulfilled our calling for the day. It's not just talking about something, just nice thoughts, which that's the most meaningless thing possible. Thoughts are with you. I don't even know what that is, but our thoughts are with you. Our prayers are with you. But thoughts are with you. That's not a blessing. There's something very specific here that he talks about that is to be a blessing. We are called to bless with our attitudes and with our actions. So that's what I want to break down. We're going to go literally word by word through this text tonight and see how this works out. So uh, on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. You were called to bless, no matter what you're doing, uh, in your job, as a son or daughter, as a church member, as a neighbor, as a citizen, whatever you, in your job tomorrow, whatever you are doing, you are called to bless. And we do that first with our attitude. Look at verse 8, verse 8. Finally, okay, finally means that he's, this is the last point uh, in a series of points. So we had A, B, and C, now we have D, finally. So that means that this section connects to the section before it. And the section before it was about submitting to authority. That's what that passage was about. So these verses are connected. We're called to bless, in the first place, those in authority. So we are called to bless those in government. We are called to bless our president. We are called to bless our governor. We are called to bless local governing authorities. Whatever bless means, and we'll see, we're called to do that. We're called to, next it talked about employers. We're called to bless our employer. Next it talked about wives. So if he says finally, all this applies. Wives are called to bless their husbands. Husbands are called to bless their wives as well. Then it says, finally, all of you. So it's got a broader application. Finally, we have a list, citizen, uh, servant or worker, and spouse. We had a list, but now it says all of you. So if you're not married, this applies to you. I was going to say, if you're not a citizen, everybody's a citizen of somewhere, so that that applies to everybody. But if you're not married, it applies to you. If you don't have uh, an employer, it applies to you. So it's now saying all of you, finally, in a line of things, but this goes to everybody. This is for everybody. Everybody is ultimately called to bless. And especially, the context is, especially when mistreated. And we're going to see that as we get through the passage. Especially, 
The whole passage has been about being mistreated earlier. The emperor was Nero, and they were to honor him. He was persecuting Christians. So, so ultimately, we are to bless, especially when mistreated. And he gives three attitudes, called to bless with our attitude, three attitudes. They are unity, uh, love, and humility. Here's the first one, unity, love, and humility. Have unity of mind. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. And this is tied to being called to being a blessing. We are called to think in a unified way. This applies to the church. All of you, people, Christians, all of you have a unified mind. See, these readers were in a marginalized and hostile culture. And here's what happens in a, when Christians are marginalized, all of a sudden petty differences aren't so important and there needs to be a unity, a coming together of the church. When things are great... When the church is prosperous, then the church can get all complainy and up in the air about everything and start dividing from Christians they don't agree with. Oh, you have a different view of the millennium. You have a different view of speaking in tongues. You have different cultural or social views than I do. So we're going to go over here with the people that are just like me, and you go over here. Hey, when the heat is on and there's resistance, we still hang on to the core of the gospel as central. We have unity of mind about the gospel. But some secondary things... When these people are being persecuted, they're not arguing about a millennium. We may get killed. I don't know when Jesus is coming back, but we may get killed. So let's hang together as a witness. Do you see that? To have unity of mind. And even as in our culture, which I'd hardly say is hostile, but it's heating, it's warming, it's becoming warmer and hotter, I would say, in opposition to Christianity. Um, certainly not hostile like theirs or like it is in so much of the world today, but more hostile perhaps than it was 50 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago. And so even in a culture like ours, it's important for the church to have unity of mind. Now, he's not calling them to uniformity. Uniformity is where everybody looks alike, sounds alike, uses the same insider lingo phrases that show we're part of the club. Uh, which is our particular church or denomination or tribe of Christians or whatever. He's not talking about that. He's not saying you have to all look the same, dress the same, smell the same, act the same. He's talking about a unity of mind, that our mind is centered on the truth of the gospel. And whatever secondary things about us in which we may differ, that they don't separate us, but we come, to, we come together as God's people around the gospel. We may be socially different. We may be culturally different. We may be politically different, racially different economically at different places of the economic spectrum. But we come together around the gospel with a unity of mind. And when we do, we bless one another. When we, when we have a unified mind about what really counts, we're a blessing to other people. And please note this, we're a blessing to people that don't know the Lord as well. When Christians... When Christians center on the gospel and don't take secondary issues as points that we're really elevating is primarily important, and we primarily elevate Christ and what he's done, then we're a blessing to people that don't know the Lord either because we provide an accessibility to them. The only stumbling block to someone coming to Christ should be the cross and not my preferences or our cultural agendas or these kind of secondary things. What, what should hinder people from coming to Jesus is they don't believe the cross. If they don't believe in the cross, 
then that will separate them from the Lord. But may it not be some political or social or some kind of secondary practice, some personal preference that I have, our style, uh, something like that. May that not hinder people, but only the gospel. So we're to be unified around the gospel. Paul says it this way, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So first of all, to be a blessing, there's, we're to be, have unity of mind. Secondly, he's going to talk about love and he's going to talk about three different parts, three different references to, to, that, that have to do with love. The first is sympathy. So he says, all of you have unity of mind, have sympathy. For us to be unified together, we must have sympathy for other people. Sympathy means that we feel uh, together. We feel what someone else feels. We enter into someone else's experience. Sympathy doesn't mean that I require you to enter my experience, and I require you to see things from my point of view, and I require you to understand me. Sympathy means I'm coming across the bridge to understand you, and I'm seeking to feel your burden and your suffering. And your pain, that's sympathy. Sympathy means the church, as Christians, we are to look outside of ourselves to understand the experience of others. Now, why do we do that? Because that's a nice thing to do? No, we do that because that's how Jesus treated us. Hebrews 4 says this, We do not have a high priest, meaning Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The Bible says here about Jesus that Jesus didn't stay at a distance from us and say, Get your act together, and then you can come to me. Get holy, and then maybe I'll listen to you. No, the Bible says that we have a high priest who sympathized with us, our weaknesses, our sins, and he came, the God-man, God became man, Jesus Christ, and he was tempted in every way as we. He experienced the same temptations we do, but he never sinned. So he didn't give in to sin when temptation came, but he experienced temptation. He suffered the same temptations that we suffer. That's our God, and that's not the typical view of deities uh, in, any, in any number of religions. Most religions don't represent a God. Uh, most represent uh, some kind of pattern where we must do things to reach up to him. But Christianity teaches that, G- that God came to us sympathizing with our weaknesses, our sins, and he was tempted, but he never sinned. So that if we believe in him, his perfect record of never sinning is credited to us. Jesus sympathized with us. And so that's why we are to sympathize with others. We're to treat others as Christ treated us. Christ didn't say, get yourself up to me, make yourself right and holy, reach a certain standard that I approve of you. No, he came to us sympathizing. And that's how we're to relate to one another. That's why Romans 12 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That means we enter into the life of other people. And what affects you affects me. What affects me is to affect you. We're called to bless. That means we're called to enter into the experience of others. As a matter of fact, in the passage we just read last week, that's how a husband is to Live. It says, verse 7, we read this last week, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. What does that mean? Be sympathetic to your wife. Understand her needs. Seek to, to get into her experience. 
See things from her point of view. And based on that, honor her is what it says. Love her. Care for her. Sympathy. Live with your wives in an understanding way. How, how do we do that? Here's how I think we start doing that. I think the first step, the first step is probably awareness. First step is probably the awareness of, man, I think a whole lot about me. Roughly 24 hours a day. Man, I think a lot about me. And, and look at how Christ has reached down to me. Now, how can I reach into someone else's life? So first point's awareness. And I think the second point is listening. It starts with listening. We sympathize with one another by becoming aware of their situation. It's asking caring questions. How do, you, how do you sympathize with the people in your small group? How do you sympathize with the people in your family? Well, you've got to know what they're going through. And the only way you know what they're going through is you ask, you listen, you care. You don't just wait for your opportunity to get in your next point. A lot of times we're active listeners, actively ready thinking about our next point while somebody's talking, as opposed to really asking questions and seeking to listen my wife does this so well. She listens. She's a great example of this to me. She listens to other people. She asks them questions. Her question ratio is about 100 to 1. For every one question she's asked, she asks about 100. But that's being sympathetic. That's how, that's how we care and how we listen is that we enter into, how can I know your experience? How can I know you, what you're walking through? How can I... How can I weep with you or celebrate? It says both. How can I rejoice or weep with you if the whole purpose of this conversation is me downloading about me to you. Like that old country songs talk about me. Remember that song a number of years ago? Let's talk about me. That's how many of us are. But Jesus came to us and he modeled that and he's changing our hearts so that we can do that for others. And we're to do that with those who don't know the Lord as well. Most people don't have anyone to listen to them, anyone to sympathize, anyone to take their burdens. Most people don't care. That's the truth. Happy Thanksgiving. That is, the, that, <laughs> that is the truth. Most people are not really caring, but Jesus changes our hearts and orients us outward so that we really care. That's what he wants us to be. That's what he's doing in us. He wants our hearts to break for those around us whose hearts are broken, the lonely around us, the troubled, the fearful the isolated, the rejected, all around us. He's calling us to sympathize, and that starts by going and by listening. And may I say this, it also applies to those who resist us and reject us and persecute us. Because the sympathetic heart seeks to realize that they've got burdens too. That much of their angry, anger and hatred and rejection stems from the very same thing happening to them. They're usually doing what's happening to them. Most people that are hateful and resistant and rejecting other people in this situation, most people that are dominate, seeking to dominate the church and persecute and harm Christians, which is what has happening in First Peter's world, most of those people have stuff going on in their own lives. They live in darkness. They're blinded. They don't know the love of Christ. They're spiritually dead and not alive. And so there is a sympathetic, to bless people, whether they're Christians or not, we must understand something in their life. And we get that by caring and by, I think, by listening. 
think by listening. As you came in tonight, you may have seen the pictures, uh, slides of the building. We've been talking a lot about the building. And I think we're moving to a central part of town. I think our front door is going to enlarge. I don't know what will happen to our church, but I think our front door, I think we have more people coming and checking it out. And I just feel convicted that we don't see that as an opportunity to tell everybody something. I think we see that as an opportunity in the first place to listen, to be great listeners, to seek to understand people and their needs and a caring heart so that based out of a caring heart, we can share with them the good news and the love of Christ. It's a great platform for telling, but I think it's also a great platform for listening. Second attitude about, brother, about love here is brotherly love. Brotherly love. So he says, have a unity of mind. And then he says three things about love. Have sympathy, have brotherly love. Have the affection of family. As Christians, we have, are called to have brotherly love for one another, and that's tied to Christ as well. All these are going to tie all of them to Jesus and what he's done. But that's tied to Christ as well. We're brothers and sisters because Jesus has died for our sins, rose, has risen again, and the Father has adopted us into his family. So I don't know if you knew this, but the term Christians, I, I, I haven't looked it up recently, but it's hardly used at all in the Bible. I know it's used in Acts where they were called disciples and they were first called Christians. But it's not a common term in the Bible. Um, neither is, you know, it's just not a common term. The most common term for someone who believes in Jesus in the Bible is brother. And it's an inclusive term that means brother and, brothers and sisters. Because when they write the letters in the New Testament, they frequently say, brothers, so-and-so, so-and-so. It's an identification of family. And so we've been adopted by God into his family. And so we are brothers and sisters. We are not just a group of people who are members of the same club. We're not volunteers in the same service organization. We're to be family. That's what we are. We are family. And to bless one another, we are to act like family. Act like family. So a question question for us as a church is, how can I help someone else feel like they're a part of the family? See, Christ came to us. Christ put our needs. He died for us. He gave his life for us. He took initiative with us. That's grace. And he calls us to do the same. And our tendency, not just our in this room, but this is the tendency of all Christians, our tendency is to say, to ask, you know, who's including me? Do I feel included? Or here's one. Do I feel connected? Do I feel like people are making a connection towards me? But that's the exact opposite question of blessing someone. To bless means to ask, who, who can I include Who is it that I could serve, listen to, care, befriend? Who is it that through my relationship they would feel connected? Who could I say, my goal is for that person and that person who feels disconnected to now feel connected? And Lord, what could I do about that? That's the attitude of blessing. I want to bless. I want to extend brotherly love. Brotherly love isn't, do you treat me like a brother? It's, am I treating you like a brother? Who can I bless relationally with brotherly love? Who can I include? Who can I help experience relationship rather than just evaluating at what level am I experiencing relationship? Probably the person who is always seeking to include others has a sense to some degree, of feeling included. 
because their eyes are not on themselves. Their eyes are on other people. They're taking interest in others. The third attitude of love is tender heart. So sympathy, brotherly love, which is something we proactively extend to others rather than wait for people to extend that to us. And then a tender heart. It's sometimes translated kind-hearted. So how do we bless? We are kind towards others. And this is because of the way Christ has treated us too. We're, we're thoughtful with others. We're patient with others. We're caring with others. This, this word tenderhearted is sometimes associated with being forgiving of other people. That's how Paul, you, might, you may remember this verse in Ephesians 4. Paul says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, and this is key, as God in Christ has forgiven you, or as God in Christ forgave you. So he says, be kind to each other. Treat each other with forgiveness. Tenderhearted means I don't hold things over you. Tenderhearted means I'm free to uh, forgive you, and and you're, you're free to do that with me as well because we will offend one another for sure. We are to forgive one another. And why? Because we're the nice people. This is the nice club. This is the happy people who have... No, because God in Christ has forgiven you. It's the same thing. We bless others with the tenderheartedness, the kindness, the kindheartedness, the heart that is affected by other people as Christ has forgiven us. How do we do that? Well, we seek to understand more and more how Jesus has treated us. It's not just get a new list You know, I'm not going to hand out on the way out the 10 ways to be kind. It's not observing the 10 ways. It's having a transformed heart. I'm not saying 10 suggestions wouldn't be valuable. I'm saying that alone won't be. It is a transformed heart when I see how Christ has treated me that empowers me to treat others as tenderhearted. Isn't this beautiful how he's saying, how do you bless? These are persecuted people. These are not people having a great day. These are people on the margins of society. And he says, look, have unity together. Have sympathy towards others. Brotherly love together. Have a tender heart towards others. And last, have a humble mind. So it's unity, it's love with three descriptors, and then it is humility. It's have a humble mind. A humble mind is not a mind that thinks ill of oneself, that just walks around saying, man, I'm sorry, I'm no good, I'm pathetic, I'm terrible, I'm ugly, I'm stupid. It just runs through, wow, that guy is humble. Did you hear the way he was just constantly berating himself? That's not humility. That's pride. Because the person who says, I'm stupid, I'm dumb, I'm ugly, I'm unspiritual, I'm whatever, that person's eyes are completely on themselves. The humble person is not aware of himself. That's why it's hard to teach about humility. Because teaching about humility makes us inevitably aware of ourselves. If we teach about, ultimately, if we ultimately teach about sympathy, brotherly love, if we teach about an other's focus, then humility is kind of a natural outworking of that. As we think about what Christ has done for us, as we lift our eyes to Jesus and lift our eye and, and focus our eyes on others, then we tend to forget about ourselves. Humility is about self-forgetfulness because we're thinking about Christ and thinking about others. It looks away from ourselves. Humility puts the interest of others above ourselves. That's what Philippians 2 says about Jesus. It is putting the needs and the interest of others above our own. 
And please note, humility always blesses. Not I'm stupid, I'm dumb. Not that. The kind of selflessness that takes an interest, that puts the interest of others above ourselves, that always blesses in every context and in every circumstance. So what he's just talked about in chapter 3, submission to governing authorities is humility in practice. He said, servants, obey your masters, is what he told them in this chapter earlier. We made the comparison to an employer. A submission to an employer, and we qualified the submission if the, if the employer is causing you to sin, if the government's requiring you to sin, then you serve God and not man, and you disobey that authority. Wives, if your husband, unbelieving husband's requiring you to sin, you say, no, I'm not going to do that. So, uh, it, it, there, there's, there's qualifications there, but those are, the, those are the exceptions and not the rule. The rule is that the humble person is, is the submitted heart. The, the person with the submitted heart is the humble person. And so these are the attitudes of what does it mean to bless? Well, it means that I'm pursuing unity in the way I think with my fellow Christians. It means that I love Christians and non-Christians alike, and it means I even love those who resist or persecute or seek to harm me. And it means that I humble myself. Those attitudes are what it means to call to be a blessing. And then there's actions tied to this as well. So he says, that's verse 8. Look at the actions, verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. So he gives us these actions. So there's, there was three big areas of attitudes. There's three big areas of actions. The first one is non-retaliation. I don't know another word for that. Uh, but it's non-retaliation. We don't repay evil for evil, is what he says. We don't repay reviling for reviling. To revile means to speak abusively, to abuse someone through our speech. Man, this is count. Th- this goes against everything that's naturally in us, doesn't it? Because we, our temptation is to get back in kind with the person that comes against us. And it's just natural, I mean, in, in, in everything. In sports, you give back what they give to you. In business, you treat me bad, I'm treating you bad. Governments, you do something to us, we'll kill you. But the individual Christian morality, which we are called to, I'm making a distinction between sports, business, national, and individual. Individually, we are called to non-retaliation. Do not repay evil for evil. Do not, if someone speaks abusively to you, you do not return with evil speech. It's exactly what Jesus did. Look at chapter 2, verse 23. Jesus, when he was reviled, when he was spoken against abusively... He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. The call to bless is a radical call. It means that I'm laying down my options of retaliation. And if you come after me, speaking evil against me, I I give up the right to speak evil and get back at you in the same way. 
if you gossip about me and tear down my reputation, I give up the right to go gossip about you and get back at you and tear down your retaliation. It doesn't say that we can't speak truth in some context if we're falsely accused. We can say, no, that's not true. That's different than returning evil for evil. But if someone harms us, if someone in your office, in essence, makes a play to, um, to hinder you so that you don't get the promotion, you don't make a play to hinder them so they don't get the promotion and, and, and in an evil way, in a deceptive way, in a harmful way. Well, how do we get even if someone treats us wrong? We bless. Do not repay evil for evil. Do not reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Those who treat us with evil, we bless. Well, how do we do that? Well, look at the actions. I mean, the attitudes. We have unity, sympathy, brotherly love. We're tenderhearted. We have humility of mind. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. Not only are we to be non-retaliation, non-retaliatory, but we're to have godly speech. Look what he says here. Um, Verse 10, he quotes Psalm 34. Psalm 34. And he says, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. So how do we bless? We don't use evil speech and we don't use deceptive speech about others. What's evil speech? Well, there's all kinds of evil speech in the Bible. Lying would be evil speech. Of course, that would also be deceit. Cursing God would be evil speech. Gossip, slander would be evil speech. Um, In the context of honoring, it said honor the emperor. We talked a lot about that. How do you honor the president? How do you honor the governor? How do you honor? Uh, In those cases, it would be not speaking in a dishonoring way. Does that mean you can't disagree politically? Of course you can disagree politically. But you can disagree with someone in an honorable way, and you can disagree with someone degrading their character, speaking evil of them as well. So we don't dishonor. What about my boss? Same thing. You don't speak about that because it talked about employer. There's a way to disagree if, if you disagree with the policy or the direction, okay? But there's a way to speak dishonorably too. So we speak honorably, not dishonorably. We speak respectfully of others, not disrespectfully. That's evil speech, sexually immoral speech, rude speech, coarse joking. Here's a big one in the Bible, complaining. Complaining. God is very serious in the Old Testament about the Israelites who are just griping about they don't like the way things are going. They want to go back to Egypt. They're judged for their complaining, grumbling, and complaining. Man, that's like breathing air. What are you talking about? Complaining? It's like a heartbeat. That's just natural. So... And, and by the way, someone who complains all the time, have you ever been, felt blessed when you're around them? Like, man, this is a, I am blessed. Thank you. Spew forth some other vile complaints. I love it. I feel great. I feel light and airy as you pour out all the things you don't like about everybody. Sarcasm. Sarcasm. That's evil speech. There you go. <laughs> Sarcasm. I have a gift of sarcasm. It can be used well, but uh, it can also be used, it can be used terribly. Okay, so this is what he's saying. To bless you, don't. He's saying, look, don't use, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Implied there is use your words to bless. You can use words to bless people. Encouragement. Encouraging people. Nobody has too much encouragement. 
Nobody at your office has too much encouragement. No one around your Thanksgiving table on Thursday has been overly encouraged. Whoa, what's happened to you this year? Oh, man, I am drowning in encouragement. Could someone please criticize me? Because this has got to stop. I'm tired of the whole world loving me and encouraging me and blessing me constantly. Man, no, everybody needs encouragement. This is it. So we, how do we, we bless, we encourage, we point them to Christ. We point them to the faithful. We speak of God and his goodness and faithfulness. We speak words of gratitude, not grumbling, complaining. What am I grateful for about you? Gratitude, words of encouragement, these kinds of things that blesses people rather than harming them. We're called to be a blessing. That applies to our online speech, too. That, it doesn't say that because there wasn't online speech 2,000 years ago. That was probably a blessing in itself. But that goes for our online speech, too, because some of us, and I know this temptation, some of us feel like, man, I would never say that to somebody's face. But I would tweet that or subtweet that, and they'll know who I'm talking about, or I'll put that up on, I'll respond to someone's Facebook uh, post, or I'll write in the comment section of a blog, oh, I feel very free, or I'll just send out, I'll text something that I would never say. I would text that, I would never say that. But I feel free, man, because online is different than, real, than IRL, you know, re- in real life. No, the online is like the virtual world. It doesn't count. Oh, it counts. I can keep, I mean, you may keep your tongue from evil, keep your fingers from evil or your thumbs, and you keep your thumbs from evil on your phone or whatever it is, if that's where you're posting your, your thing. What we write on social media, you, we can bless people on social media. We can be a blessing. We, we, can, we can have unity of mind. We can have points where we're agreeing. We can read social media and be aware of people that we know personally and, and, and enter into sympathetic sense of where they are. We can express brotherly love. We can have a tender heart towards people. We can have a humble mind on social media, a humble mind. So godly speech, how do we bless others? We're not retaliatory Retaliatory when people are evil to us, non-retaliation. We don't respond in kind, evil for evil. We, we don't use ungodly speech. And lastly, he says we do good, verse 11. Let them turn away from evil and do good let him seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. I did a little bit of reading about this. Do you notice in your Bible that in verse 10, if you, if you have a, I don't know how it looks if you're looking on a device, if it does this, but in the written, in the paper Bible anyway, it sets it apart. Verses 10 through 12 look different than the rest of the page. That means that it's a quote and it's a quote from Psalm 34. And um, if you're new to the Bible, the Bible's not accidental. Peter wasn't sitting there going, man, I need a new quote. I need a good quote. Like you're writing a paper in school. I got to get Google. I got to get a good quote in here. And so you just find some quote that, oh, Abraham Lincoln said that. Put that in the paper. That sounds good. That's not how the Bible is written. The Bible is intentional. And so when Peter chooses by God's direction to pick Psalm 34, there's a reason. Here's the reason. Psalm 34 says, the heading before we get to it, says that it's written when David was on the run. That's not the words. I'm paraphrasing. When David was on the run from Saul and he had to act crazy in front of the king of Gath uh, so that he would let him go. 
So then David writes this whole psalm, taste and see that the Lord is good. He writes this wonderful psalm, I'll bless the Lord at all times. David is a fugitive when he writes this. David lives in a, he had lived at various times in a cave. The, the, he was anointed king, but the actual king Saul was chasing him and trying to kill him. So he lived in a cave with, and literally the Bible says all the people in the cave was all the people that were in debt, everybody that everybody didn't like, all the people with problems in their society, whoever was completely a social outcast went to the cave of Adullam. That's who David was hanging out with. So David's with all, man, it is bad for David. And, and uh, Saul is trying to kill him. And you know how David responds in, in 1 Samuel 24? The littlest kids are over there, so I can tell you this. It's not bad, but they would all get a giggle out of it. Saul is trying to kill him. David's hiding in a cave. Saul comes in the cave to do his business. The Bible says to relieve himself. He's, he's relieving himself. And so while he is in position, David sneaks up and he cuts off the corner of his robe and takes it. And his guys are saying, kill him. He's there doing that stuff. Just kill him right now. Just kill him. He didn't. Saul goes out of the thing, out of the cave. David goes out of the cave and says, hey, Saul, I got this, I got this piece of your garment. I, I don't want to harm you. And he speaks these words of life to Saul. He, uh, you are the Lord's anointed. Saul is a mess. David's going to be the next king. You are the Lord's anointed. And this is what Saul says. David bows down to him. He could have killed him. He bows down to the authority, the cruel authority that's trying to kill him. He bows down to him. And, and, and Saul, he says, I am not against you, Saul. And Saul says this, David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good where I repaid you evil. It's the exact thing Peter's talking about. Two chapters later, David's being chased by Saul for Samuel 26. Uh, David looks out and sees Saul and his army asleep at night. David, with his men, sneaks down there. There's a spear right by Saul. His guy says, give me the spear. And he says this, one thrust, I'll kill him, not even move. I can get him in a single thrust. And he says, I'll pin him to the ground. David says, no, grab the sword, they leave. They leave, and he calls out over the valley to Saul. Hey, Saul, is that you, David? Yeah, I got your, got your sword. Same thing. David says, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousnesses and his faithfulness. The Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put my hand against the Lord's anointed. David says, you are against me. You are trying to kill me. You are evil, but you are God's anointed, and I will not kill you. I will serve and bless. I don't want to hurt you, he says. Let me come. I don't want to retaliate. It's this passage. I mean, that's what he says, verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. That is what David said. And a greater king than David lived this way. That was Jesus. Jesus lives this way. His enemies rejected him. And what did Jesus say on the cross? Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. He could have retaliated. He could have killed them as they're killing him. He could have reviled. He could have spoken curses over them. Anger, evil, I hate you. He could have just been saying everything, but he's the perfect son of God. He forgave. They don't know what they're doing. He blessed them. A greater one than David. Here we have David's psalm and a life that reflects it. But we ultimately look and see that is Jesus. 
The Father doesn't treat us as our sins deserve either. We postured ourselves as his enemies, and he's made us his friends. And now we are called to bless like this. It's radical. It's unheard of. It's unseen in our culture. And it is the most compelling witness we have. We're real good at talking, criticizing everybody. Yeah, we're really good at putting up, many of us as Christians, we're really good at just complaining against the world and blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. But this, accompanying a gospel witness, a verbal witness of the gospel, and a lifestyle of blessing, that's what the world needs. And that's what he said, to this you were called, bless to this you were called. You're called to bless through your attitudes and through your actions. Now, who is the Lord calling you to bless? Think through your relationships. If you, if you have a family, think through your family and ask, how are my attitudes in pursuing unity, pursuing love, pursuing humility? Am I avoiding retaliation? Am I pursuing godly speech? And as it says here, am I doing them good, is what the psalm said. Am I doing them good? good. You may have an opportunity this week. Some of you are traveling. Some of you have people traveling to be with you. Some of you, some of us, will be sitting around a table with folks who have harmed us, who have spoken against us, who have resisted us, who have rejected us in some way. What an opportunity to practice. How can I bless my family? How can I bless my spouse? How can I bless my children? How can I bless my parents? Because that's what you're called to do. You're called to be a blessing. If you just run through your relationships, my family, who, how can I bless? How can I do good? If I've spoken evil, how can I ask forgiveness for that and now start speaking encouragement? If I'm tempted to retaliate, how can I lay it down and bless them instead? Think about your small group. Why should you go to your small group? Because it's some kind of requirement? No. Because your whole life is called to bless. And if you're not participating in your small group, you're not blessing. You're, not ble- you're wasting the opportunity to bless. So who in your small group needs sympathy, needs your sympathetic ear and your tender heart and your brotherly and sisterly love? Who needs you to express unity? How can you build unity in your small group? How can you create, how can you build towards a unified mind and how can we do that as a church? Your small group, your work relationships. Well, they don't know the Lord. That's what the whole book's about. Well, they don't know the Lord. Well, they're like really mean. They're rude. They're crazy. They're sleazy. They're whatever. Good. The Lord has put you there because he wants you to bless You're the light in the darkness. They don't know the blessing of the Lord. They're blessed, but they don't know it. And the Lord wants you to be the tangible blessing to them. So how can I sympathize with my coworker? How can I sympathize with my boss? How can I, rather than plot how to get back at them, how can I bless and forgive? How can I do them good? And how can I change my speech so that it's not an ungodly, deceptive speech? Keep my tongue from evil. It's a blessing. How can I speak well about my boss and coworkers this week? Not because I'm a nice guy, but because Jesus has graciously treated me as I didn't deserve. So that's what we think. Well, they don't deserve it. We don't want to get what we deserve. 
We received grace, and now we're called to give that grace. What a privilege. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe you have a problem with one of your neighbors. How could you be a blessing? Church as a whole, how can we bless? How can we bless? You know, I'll talk about this later, but just to say I had an opportunity to um, take one of our city council members to lunch. And the main reason I wanted to meet with this gentleman was to say, um, how can our church be a blessing to the city? Just to say, hey, look, we're going to be right, we're right next to you. City Hall's just literally across the street. And so we're going to be right there. We have a facility. You may have needs in the city government. You may have needs. How could we bless you? What could we do to help? What do you need? Because I think we're called to be a blessing as a church. I think we're called to say, how can we take what we have and serve other people? Is there anyone opposing you right now? Family member, neighbor, friend, ex-friend, former friend, your, your, um, your former spouse, your parent. Is there, some, who is, is there anyone opposing you? How can you bless? Because that's what you're called. That's the whole reason you're breathing God's air tonight if you're a Christian, is to be a blessing. It's about them. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about how can I live my life to bless with attitudes and actions. Very last thing here, and this is super brief because we're out of time. But the very last thing, if you look at verse 9, he says, On the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. God has blessed us in Christ so that we can be a blessing to others. And as we bless other people, that is the blessing of life. That is the greatest blessing of life. The greatest blessing of life is to know Jesus and to represent him to other people and to channel his love to other people. You will obtain a blessing, is what he says. It's more blessed to give than to receive, Jesus says. When we live this way, we think it's best for me if I get everything for me. And really, honestly, to hell with everyone else. As long as I get what I'm getting, that's great life. It's all about me getting ahead. And the Bible says that that is hell. Hell is self-orientation for eternity apart from God. That's, that's judgment. Real life... Real blessing is how can I be a blessing to everyone else? How can, I, how can I enter into the lives of other people, care for them, love them, serve them, speak to them, bless them even if they oppose me, specifically if they oppose me, at the top of the list, those who oppose me? How can I bless them? Because if we do that, we will experience the blessing of God in the richest way. It's an upside-down kingdom. It's completely counterintuitive. It goes against everything that we anticipate. But that's how Jesus lived, and that's what he did for us. So as we enter into this Thanksgiving, we have so much to be thankful for. Let's look at it with these eyes. Who can I bless and how can I bless them? Through attitudes, and there's three major attitudes listed here. And through actions, there's three actions listed there in the passage. How can I seek to bless this season? Because in so doing, I will honor the Lord, I will care for others, but I'll be the most blessed of all. Not that that's the goal, but that's the result. That's the fruit. The most blessed person is the one who lives his life, her life, receiving the blessing of God to bless others. That's the blessed life. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org. Thank you.